Welcome to Additive Insight, your source of news, interviews and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Cora Leibig, the founder and CEO of Chromatic 3D Materials. Chromatic 3D Materials was founded in 2016 with the mission to expand the range of materials open to users of polymer 3D printing helping to push the technology into industrial production applications. It has since launched its RexAM technology platform and today offers a series of polyurethane materials under the Chroma Flow, Chroma Motive and Chroma Last brand names. Throughout our conversation, Liebig explains why she felt compelled to establish Chromatic 3D materials, the capabilities of the company's materials portfolio and the applications this offering is enabling. We also discussed the growth of the additive manufacturing sector, as well as the industry's ongoing M&A activity. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head over to tctmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. Laura, welcome to the Additive Insight Podcast. How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you. Good to start. So um, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> um, I wanted to start, uh, Cora, with the, I guess, the the beginnings of chromatic 3D materials. Um, and I guess I wanted to understand the motivation behind the company and I guess how it how it all came about for you and your and your colleagues at the top of the company. Sure, sure, absolutely. So um, I was really motivated to start Chromatic for two core reasons. Um, The first is that I really think manufacturing needs it. Um, It's a huge opportunity. And secondly, I believe additive really needs expanded material offerings and for thermoset materials in particular. And just to delve into that a little bit more, Um, I started my career in the materials industry at Dow Chemical, and at Dow, you know, it's one of the largest major manufacturers in the world of plastic materials, and you get a fantastic view of the supply chain and all the conversion steps that it takes to go from raw material to finished goods, and depending on the industry and the product, it could be five to ten steps in the supply chain, and with each step, the supply chain gets more fragmented and adds transportation and labor and inventory costs. And it makes sense why the economy is set up this way. It's because centralized and mass production is efficient and it saves money. And and you can call that the economies of scale. You learn about it in school. Um, But since that point, 25 years ago, when I started to see how how this unfolds, I've held the belief that any technology breakthrough that can disrupt those economies of scale would open the possibility for production that's much more local, much more responsive, and more innovative. You know, um, I've seen that this kind of web of supply chains can really stop innovation in its tracks. And, um, And so when I learned about 3D printing, you know, and the advances that had happened around 2012, I knew that 3D printing could do exactly that, could could really disrupt the economies of scale and um, and make manufacturing much more local and responsive. And I wanted to be a part of it, you know. Um, and so then when I started to investigate the 3D printing offerings, 
I noticed that there were some significant material classes, you know, specifically thermosets or cross-link materials that were missing from the palette. And um, it represents 20 to 25% of all plastic materials. So I know it's a very significant opening. And um, and I also could see some of the, the, the challenges associated with um, both FDM and inkjet and powder fusion. And I thought reactive printing could really resolve those issues around material strength and durability, material versatility, interlayer adhesion, um, and also simplify printer designs. Um, and so, and it was a field that I knew a lot about. So I was actually the, in charge of product development for the thermoset businesses at Dow. And so I had a good understanding of both the markets and the material technology. And that's really when I started Chromatic. Okay, so you, you mentioned obviously your, your prior experience at Dow. So I guess as you, uh, before you'd got into the 3D printing space through Chromatic, to what extent had you worked with 3D printing technology or followed its progress? You know, you mentioned the advancements around 2012. What, what were you seeing at that time as well that was kind of piquing your interest, um, you know, a decade or so ago? At that time, what I was seeing was um, just the the uh, the quality of the parts that were being produced, as well as the diversity of materials and technologies that had that had been developed. Um, I really hadn't been that involved in 3D printing up until that point, but I think what was what was really important to me was that um, one of my first jobs out of school was working on the flow properties of PLA. And I knew that PLA is really unsuitable for a lot of plastics processing. And yet in 3D printing, its flow is perfect. You know, it's exactly what people like to work with. And so that gave me an important clue that, that the plastics as they're made for standard plastics processing don't work for 3D printing. And that there was the opportunity was to make materials that were really made for success in 3D printing. And how would you assess the availability of materials that 3D printing technologies today kind of taking the whole industry into account? Obviously, you know, PLA, sure. you know, is a, is a big material in this industry. Um, you know, we've kind of grown into peaks and pecs and PA12s and PA11s, but what's your feel for, for where the industry is at in terms of materials availability on the on the polymer side? Um, I think material availability is still at a very, very early stage. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's making a lot of progress. You know, every year we have new material families that are interested introduced, but those are families that are being introduced and not some of the the you know fine fine grades that that customers are used to. You know, mm -hmm. the um, you know, there's just not this level of grades and customization that manufacturers are accustomed to. And so we're still at a point where, you know, the number of 3D printing material grades is still at a 20 to 50 to one ratio right now. You know, how many um, how many grades there are for 3D printing versus how many grades are available for for standard manufacturers. There's you know probably 20 or 50 more grades for every one grade of 3D printing material. And so um, the technologies that 
you know, that permit use of commercial grades and 3D printers are great for increasing the range of availability of materials. So that's, um, you know, that it, it's great to see some of the pellet extrusion technologies coming out, but we're still really at a very, very early stage of providing customers the, the range of, of, of materials that they're used to for their standard products. And can you, so first, can you run me through the, I guess, the materials offering that Chromatic 3D has today, but also sure. talk about the the kind of approach you've taken to developing and releasing materials um, since 2016 and the last seven years. What's the roadmap been there yeah. and, and how have you worked through that? Sure. Our technology platform overall is built around thermosets and, and a benefit of thermosets is that they are liquid formulations. And so it's very straightforward to adjust material properties by changing the liquid mixtures. So it's a platform that's really built for adaptability. You know, in um, in a thermoset business, it's not uncommon that you have a set grade for every customer or multiple grades for every customer. So we started with polyurethane elastomers, and we started there before urethanes because urethanes are some of the strongest elastomers anyone can buy. You know, they're used on the sole of your hiking boots, bowling balls, concrete coatings, you know, they're all over the place. Um, but elastomers are very lightly cross-linked, and that light cross-linking at a molecular level makes it difficult for TPUs and photo crosslinks to achieve similar performances of thermosets. So that makes it a nice opening for market entry. And that's really why we started there. Um, we started with our chromaflow grades, sort of a, a standard, easy to work with grade for, um, with, for, for our 3D printing technology, Rexam. And they come in a range of hardnesses from 50 to 90. And then since then, we've added a number of families so we added chromomotive to meet some of the the tensile and durability requirements for automotive um, customers and then we added chromolast for compression strength so that's something that um that's a whole grade that's built around having a really great elastic recovery if it's under compression which is really necessary for seals and gaskets um and and parts like that and then we've also added our high flow chroma flow grades for printing on fabric. So we've added all of these grades in response to demand and needs that we were hearing in the marketplace. So we started with chroma flow and then we would have customers ask us, hey, can you give us a grade that's more like this, something with a more compression set? And then we would develop accordingly. And we can offer these, you know, in a, in a number of custom colors or, or in the most asked for color, which of course is black. <laughs> so, um, we're, you know, we're also launching a new material in a shore D hardness. It's more comparable to polypropylene performance, um, but this is really just the start. And which, so you mentioned there, in terms, you know, uh, as you're moving through this roadmap of materials, you're responding to customer needs and customer wants. How much of, of what you guys do is is based purely on, on what the customer is asking for and how much of it is using your own expertise to develop formulations and, and address issues out in the market and you know maybe provide alternatives to the materials that are currently used in in the additive manufacturing space and by additive manufacturing users you know many many of our customers are not active users of additive manufacturing 
They've been looking at additive manufacturing and they haven't found the materials that they were looking for. So mm-hmm. I would say we're we're very seldom looking at it as, hey, here's an offset for this stratasys grade or here's an offset for the the um, you know, a powder grade or anything like that. We're really looking at it based on where we find customers that have a significant value proposition to adopt 3D printing into their into their manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also significant to note that I think just about every one of our customers is using our technology and looking at using our technology for use in their production processes. So they're really we're not competing against prototyping. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's fairly unique. So it's it's really been based on really looking for opportunities in the market has driven a lot of those those grades that we're we're after. In terms of the the usage of of your materials for production as opposed to prototyping, what has that been a conscious decision from Chromatic from the start to target production? And and if so, why why is the the I guess the the focus there as opposed to prototyping, which is obviously you know an established use case of 3D printing technology? What is it that's made you kind of pivot to production first and foremost? I think it starts from my you know my base hypothesis, which is that manufacturing needs 3D printing. And and I also think that it's in these industrial applications that you have the real business makers. You know, this is how you can grow a significant business. And it's by listening to those applications, the application needs and those manufacturing needs that you can really build a solid business. Um, the other The other piece of that is that you know, those larger applications where you're actually in production is where it makes sense to make, um, to tune up your properties based on the application needs. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was really based on, you know, what we wanted to do as a business. Um, there's also an element that's tuning to what the technology is good at, right? Our technology is really good at um, getting the material properties right. We're very much um, a roadmap is dedicated to continuing to improve our resolution. You know, there's no doubt that there's some aspects of resolution that an SLA printer can do better than some of our technology. But um, but there's also a lot of things that our technology does better, you know, starting from, from material properties and then extending to thick walls and and large parts. So that's you know, you got to stick to where you think you can really excel and, and build a business. Another aspect of Chromatic 3D materials is um, the RX AM hardware platform. Um, so can you tell us about the development of this product and how it ties into um, you know, the, the company's mission and, and its, um, its aims and objectives as a, as a business? Sure. So first, let me tell you a little bit about Rexam technology. So the way Rexam technology works is that two liquid components are mixed essentially in the printhead and then extruded. So it's a little bit like a a reactive FDM type process. It's a deposition process. So we don't need any lasers and we don't need any heat. It's just that act of mixing starts the solidification process. But that means because we don't have an input of heat or lasers, it means we can simplify the printer quite a bit. We don't need ovens. We can have a more open gantry system. And, you know, we've spent a lot of years developing and fine tuning our technology and our and our Rexflow printers, which we launched in 2022. 
Um, they have a very large print bed and and some of the features that allow a customer to improve print quality and functionality. Um, but they're really the only ones in the market that are built for reactive extrusion additive manufacturing. Um, so the the other the other piece there is that because we don't need ovens and some of these other elements of the of the printer, it means we can build something that's very open, easy to adapt, and and at a, a really attractive cost point. And are the materials you're developing designed just to print on on this machine, or do you do you come with this kind of open um, approach to to materials development and materials usage? So we really we we started the printer. We start we launched the Rexflow printers because um, we we just found it was much more customer friendly. Um, it's usually the most affordable in, path for for people to adopt our technology. But we definitely have a very open attitude is probably the best the best way to put it. So we have several customers who are implementing our technology by placing you know the pumps that we use on their factory robotic systems where they aren't necessarily buying a printer at all and we work with them to do that. Um, an important element is that the software package that we use for controlling our printing and, and getting a very high quality print is um, is something that needs to be incorporated in the firmware. So we need um, you know, if, if a printer is built with open firmware, then usually we can we can adapt it. But oftentimes the Rexflow printer is, is really the, the most cost effective way to go. Um, one of the, the interesting things that I, um, I read on the Chromatic 3D website is the idea of changing material properties during the, the printing process. So can you explain A, how that works and then B, what the you know, what the benefit for the users might be? Um, from doing that? Sure. Um, a benefit of, of the liquid feeds that we have is that you can mix multiple liquid combinations in the mixer and get a true blend of properties. You know, that's not true in a lot of plastic systems. In many plastic systems, A plus B, you know, results in something awful, you know, and, but in a, in a thermostat system, because the, the, the molecules are built up, the plastic is built as it's mixed, um that's really not the case and so you can um and it was really part of our government grant with the national science foundation we proved that we could mix a soft material with a hard material in the mixer and get materials that were just as strong as the material designed for intermediate softness um but i would and so what this means is that we can instead of just having two liquid feeds have four liquid feeds and get a whole spectrum of properties and that's really the origin of the name chromatic 3d materials um, but, and the benefit of that also is that within the part, we can move from soft to hard or from one property to another. You know, it can also be a color change or it can be a, an electrical property that you design the resins to change between. And I, I really think that this is one of the most untapped benefits of 3D printing is multi-material designs. And the reality is that the handbook for multi-material designing hasn't been written yet. Um, and there, there are a number of other technologies out there for 3D printing that enable um, multi-material designs. Um, and, and we're still at the point where customers are just starting to think about what that can enable. And it, we find that it can really eliminate a number of multi-part assemblies. Simplest example can be a hinge. 
you know, in a hinge, you have two rigid parts with the soft part in between um, and have a flexible hinge without any adhesive bonds. Um, you can have a flexible hose with rigid ends to facilitate a nice strong connection. Um, you can think about that for something like duct work. Um, you can put high abrasion resistance at a wear surface. You know, there's a, you can put conductive paths on the shell of a part. You know, and all of that can be achieved without multi-part assemblies and adhesives. That's usually how we would accomplish such things is we have to do a lot of gluing and, and handling. And, um, and so it's something that I think 3D printing can bring, but unfortunately it, it requires a lot of investment in design capabilities because our custom, you know, customers don't know how to use it yet. And we mm. have to help them with that. So, yeah, I was going to ask how much of an, of an education piece is that? Because I think if, if you were to talk to engineers and designers, the idea of multi-material parts and assemblies is, you know, is a, a big deal that, you know, love the idea of it. But how real is it to actually integrate and to kind of change the behaviour from, you know, doing what they've always been doing, assembling parts that, you know, right. to be whatever, screwed together, glued together, whatever it may be. How much of a challenge is that to make a, a concept like multi-material parts a, a reality in, in the real world? I mean, it's, um, I mean, in terms of making it, we're, I mean, we're, we are able to do it and we've been able to do it. Um, we found that the biggest bottleneck really is the design side. Um, the other, you know, there's a lot of places in apparel that we're finding that we can bring some of this, um, some of this kind of uh, approach and in apparel you instantly think about color but also being able to we you know, one of the major value propositions we have with our customers is that we're able to print our our plastic material onto a fabric and it sticks really well and so you can change that from being hard to more flexible and then that changes how the the fabric will respond to to the body and the body's contours. So mm. this is um, so that that's an example of a real practical application of it. But you do find that um, you know most designers haven't you know they can think of a way that they want to use it, but then when it comes down to the brass tacks, you you just really have to build out some prototypes and and demonstrate how it really works. You know, you mentioned earlier that um, your your users are all kind of production focused with with the technologies that they that they purchase from from Chromatic. Can you talk to me about the kinds of applications that you're seeing your materials enabling, and and I guess what the the impacts that you and your customers are, are seeing from from implementing the you know the materials products in your portfolio? Sure. So. Typically, our customers, um, their their uses fall into one of two camps. One is that they're either using our technology to eliminate manual labor or they're eliminating inventories. Um, one really cool area where, where customers are using our technology is the one that I was just describing where you can print on fabrics. Um, we can also print on other plastics and print on metals. And what this means is that it, it really helps to eliminate a number of assemblies um, in apparel in particular we you know look at that application they can eliminate um, 
They can eliminate use of a wire for providing structure. They can eliminate having to do the seam casing for it. You know, the you know the numbers of steps that assembly steps that our customers are able to point out that they're saving usually is five or six, which is pretty staggering and makes for a really strong value proposition. Um, we have another customer doing a similar similar thing um, to the to apparel manufacturing where they are attaching they're they're basically printing directly on an automobile textile and um, another example of uh, customers printing directly on a plastic component to add vibration dampening so the common theme there is that in every case they're eliminating assembly steps and manual labor and with the the crunch we have on manual labor these days this is really important um, in the rubber parts industry, that's where we eliminate a lot of inventory. Um, rubber parts are interesting because they are so essential to almost every piece of industrial equipment, um, but they're, the parts are often hard to source. There's a, the, the parts expire, so you can't keep more than five or six years of inventory. And um, we have one example where we made, we, we printed a number of cable grommets that are in buses today. So they're the cable grommets that hold all the cables that run through a bus and that's used in a number of buses today. Um, we also have large parts in rolling, rolling stock of trains. So both trains and buses, these fit into the category of, of fleets that are smaller than an automobile fleet. And so that's where the, the inventory stock requirements are just, um, are just difficult because you're the, you know, you want to be able to produce in the tens of thousands and not in the millions. And so it's difficult to to just maintain the right supply. Oh, uh, we've also found, oh, sorry. We've also found that we offer really significant value proposition in large gaskets. That was a little bit of a, a surprise. The costs associated with making large rubber parts is is actually very expensive. And the time that a part needs to sit in a mold can be like hours. And so um, so we're able to print large gaskets and significantly cut the costs of those large parts. So that's another common theme, especially for that, also in that inventory category. That's interesting. And, and what does, um, you know, th these applications of, of your technology, I guess, tell you about where additive manufacturing is at this point? Um, you know, there's a lot of talk generally outside of chromatic 3D about the use of the technology for high volume production technology. Um, you know, chromatic as a business is obviously looking that way as well, you know, beyond just prototyping. So I guess what's the reality of, of where AM is at as a, as a group of technologies in terms of enabling, um, you know, true production applications from your perspective? You know, I, I get a lot of questions about how do we compare against injection molding, and um, you know I I just don't I don't view the future as one where mass production from injection molding is eliminated. I see it as one where 3D printing, additive manufacturing, is one of those tools as part of the tool set for making goods, and each technology has what it's really good at. You know, plastic parts aren't made by one process, and they're made by many different processes, and each with different benefits. And what I saw as the potential for 3D printing is is not one where an injection molding shop replaces its injection molding machine with 3D printers, but one where the 50 customers of that molding shop 
by printers instead because they can control their inventories and develop designs that are desirable for their customers. So that's really where I see additive going is, is really being able to provide a much more local, responsive, and innovative uh, way of making making goods in an affordable way. And it really is an affordable way. Um, you know, maybe they keep buying some components from their old injection molding supplier, but they're you want the the customers that are that are further down in the supply chain to be able to depend on the versatility of their printing abilities. And I, I think that's very, very real. You know, the, the dynamics of how many manufacturers are trying to onshore um, is, is huge. You know, and if I just look at the example of our bus cable grommets that I was telling you about, you know, we were able to show that 50 3D printers, which would cost about the same as that injection molding machine, um, that was required for those grommets could outproduce that machine three to five times. Mm. So there's there's enough problems in the uh, there's enough problems in manufacturing that we don't need to to go head to head with something else performing at its best. It's that we need to go after where it's performing at its worst. Mm-hmm. And that's what true disruption um, looks like. Do you think? I think most would agree that you know AM will be a you know a tool in the tube toolbox as people say and it'll you know live side by side with technology like injection molding but then when we guess when the conversation is framed about am as a as a real production technology do you think there's an element of us comparing it with injection molding and maybe that's not entirely fair because they're different technologies for different things solving different problems so it's it might never be able to reach the volumes of injection molding, but that doesn't mean it isn't, a, you know, success. And right, isn't that's not, right. It shouldn't be the goal. It definitely mm. shouldn't be the goal. You know, it's our goal should be let's make manufacturing more innovative. Let's make manufacturing more efficient. And how can we make that happen? Mm-hmm. And um, and and that's, you know, all of the manufacturing processes are going to be a part of that dynamic the reason why additive can make such a difference and can disrupt manufacturing is because it allow it allows us to break those rules of that in order for mass production to, to work, you have to have a single place in the world that makes a bazillion things. Um, the reason why that's not responsive is that when that injection molding piece of equipment is churning out a million parts and it comes in with an order for 10,000, it's never, you know, no one wants to shut down that machine to make 10,000 parts. That's a pain, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, but the reality is that the million parts that that injection molding machine is making is making it for customers who are spread around the world who maybe don't want exactly the identical one millionth part. Mm-hmm. And that's when we can really make a difference is because we're able to offer as, a, as an industry, we're able to offer a technology that brings high performance parts that um, that can be customized to meet customer needs and um, and and in a local way. Mm-hmm. When I was um, doing some of the, the research for for this interview, Cora, I came across an article you wrote and published on the, the Chromatic website, um, I think around the, the new year. Um, and you noted that many 3D printing companies are, are missing their revenue targets, but that manufacturers at the same time are still struggling with their supply chains. And therefore, there's, you know, there's this opening for massive growth in the 
3D printing industry um, that isn't necessarily panning out as one might expect. So I guess if if manufacturers at large are struggling with their supply chains, you would assume that 3D printing is doing well off the back of that. So what do you what do you think is going on there? Why is that not exactly working the way on paper it should? So as an industry, I think we need to do a better job of really leading in on understanding what our customers are trying to do. You know, I, th- I think that's just absolutely essential. And we, and we need to retool, um, you know, the, the fact that we haven't seen the, the growth that we expect means that we need to re- retool for industrial production. I think it's, uh, it's wrong to think that industrial production doesn't need additive. That is just wrong. It means that additive needs to step up to what it is manufacturing needs. Um, and, and part of what that comes down to is manufacturers at the end of the day, they don't want a printer. They want cost-effective ways to make their products and serve their customers. And um, you know, one of the things that I, I noticed about the additive market when I when I entered was that um, you know in the if you we need to borrow more from the playbooks of raw material suppliers so if you think about you know there's industrial production equipment that's sold all the time has been sold long before additive ever came to came to the show and what would happen is that the equipment manufacturer could sell their piece of equipment and then they they can sell a little bit of service that goes with it but if that customer doesn't adopt it and they already made the sale, they can move on to the next customer who wants another piece of, of equipment. If you are a raw material supplier, you only sell through the ongoing consumption of your goods. And so what I what I noticed in the raw material industry is oftentimes um, raw material suppliers end up knowing their customers' processes and knowing the technical aspects of their business better than the customers themselves. And that keeps everyone aligned towards making that adoption happen, you know. And and I think that the 3D printing industry needs to lean in and adapt their products, adapt their materials, adapt their printers, and really walk with their customers in solving the production and design challenges. By I think it's great that we've gotten a lot of business through prototyping and tooling. This is excellent. But the reality is that um, the things a designer needs for prototyping are different than what they need for putting something on their production line. And that requires a, a different way of thinking about our products that we offer the industry. Mm-hmm. In that um, in that same article, you suggested, um, you know, adaptability of materials and printers um, and, and how necessary that is. And, and that needs to go hand in hand with technical service. So can you, I guess, elaborate a little bit more on on the importance of of those things and how they go hand in hand you know technical technical service is the path by which suppliers get to know the technical challenges faced by their customers in a way and and get to understand how the technology can be shaped to to solve real problems you know i I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a manufacturer with an idea of how a technology I'm offering might solve a problem, but come back with an even bigger opportunity for a slightly different offering. And it's it's 
that is the means by which we need to be able to adapt our products and that goes for printers and it goes for materials so if you can go into a manufacturing line and say wow if we're able to you know add this component to our printer then we we've got this we're going to really solve a big problem that only happens if you are are there right it only happens if you're on the floor of a of an assembly line you know there's been times you know, we talk a lot about solving inventory problems as as an industry. Um, you know, there are you need people. There are times when I've walked into a shop and I've seen a production floor that is one tenth the size of the shelving and warehousing, and you have to pay attention to well, what what is on the shelves, mm. and when you find out that what's on the shelves is an intermediate good, a, a work in progress then you realize that the the real advantage for additive can be in producing that intermediate good and not necessarily the final part and you only know that by by looking you only know that by going in there and seeing it and you have to get in the door because you have a, a value proposition that allows your customers to open the door in the first place but then you have to be prepared for the idea that the kind of product that you need to offer might be very different than the one you thought you were going to offer. So do you get a sense that there's not enough of that happening within within AM, that there's not enough kind of uh, tech suppliers going through the doors of their of their um, customers and, and kind of seeing how they work and seeing, you know, getting a fuller picture of what's going on and going back and knowing what they need to do to the, help address those problems? Is that Right. Is that a thing that is going on or is it, you know, is there, is there room for improvement in, in that area? I think there needs to be a lot more of it. I think mm-hmm. we'd be seeing a lot more um, emphasis on innovation in the additive industry if we were doing more of it. The I'm sure that most manufacturers are, are doing some of it. I think one of the things that is... Um, it's a help, but also a little unfortunate is that a number of large corporations have started 3D printing departments. And that 3D printing department is designed to to kind of have the insight into what their corporation needs. And um, but that can be a little bit of a gatekeeper also for the additive technology suppliers. Mm-hmm. So um, so we need to to make sure that we're you know, we're able to get through the door, work with those with those 3D printing departments and make sure that we're um, still have access to the to the real um, production challenges of a business. Mm-hmm. Um, we're um, we're some way into this conversation and I think we've done a good job of not yet addressing the saga, but I can't really have a conversation with with anybody in this space no. without talking about Stratasys and desktop metal and, and 3D systems and nanodimension. Um, and obviously the last few months, it's you know, there's been updates every day, the day of recording, there's, you know, a press release in my inbox um, with another update. So from, I guess, from your perspective as the founder and the CEO of, a, of an additive manufacturing company, what do you make of the, I guess, the M&A activity even beyond those four companies um, that we've seen um, in the last mm-hmm. couple of years and, and how that's impacting the AM industry and whether we're, this is the right time for this market to be undergoing this kind of um, shift and consolidation. Sure. 
you know, first of all, I don't claim to know the ins and outs of these deals, um, but, you know, I have investors. And so from my vantage point, it strikes me as a problem where investors are looking for profit and revenue growth. And so companies with money are trying to buy other companies with revenue to show show the growth that they've promised. Um, and I think the consolidation, consolidation usually brings cost synergies and um, you know we'll probably get some of that but i'm not seeing a lot of evidence that the consolidation will yield the continued innovation that's so desperately necessary for in- industry growth overall so i think given the state that additive manufacturing is is not um is not reaching its 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 tam yet so it's not like it's not like uh, 3D printing has reached the point where where the manufacturing problems have gone away. We've solved all the problems that additive is going to solve. That would be a state when you say, ah, now let's get some cost out of the system. We're still in a place where we're just at the beginning of the hockey stick. And yes, that hockey stick has been slow in coming. You know, we have not delivered the the, the pitch that we that we have promised investors as an industry. But those problems are still there. And and so what is needed is more of this pivoting to what is it that our customers really want. Um, and, and I fear that a lot of the M&A activity is distracting from the conversation about innovation. You know, let's not forget that the investors in 3D printing invest because they believe 3D printing is going to change the face of manufacturing and product design. Our investors, not just our founders and companies, believe in it, believe in the change that can happen. And that's what we're all paid to do. Um, you know, yes, investors want to see returns and revenue growth, but that's that's how we'll all be rewarded when we succeed. And is it so I've, I've spoken to a few people about this, and is it is there an argument that the some of the companies involved, say Stratasys and 3D, who are you know the oldest companies in the industry, they're they're so big at this point that they are not going to bring the innovation or would you look at it and think just because they're a big company and it's not as flexible as maybe they used to be they shouldn't they should still come with that innovative attitude and they should still want to be the ones to make the next breakthrough where do you stand on it's you know certain companies are not capable anymore of providing the innovation that's needed as i, I guess a, a counter argument to that would allow them to, you know, do this M and A. You know, I think I think that, um, you know, I, I don't want to I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. I don't think sure. that's fair. The, um, you know, I I do think that as an industry, we need to be we need to continue the drive to innovate. And, um, you know, I know it does get more difficult as as you grow a company. It does get difficult to keep that engine of innovation. Um, the spark that just keeps the creativity going. Um, some some leaders are better at it than others, and um, and I think it's the job of those large companies to make sure that it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible. It's certainly possible. It's not just because they're big. They're certainly not so big that they can't be innovative. Um, you know, it's. Uh, and I and I'm sure they've worked really hard to think about where they can get the revenue that they're looking for. Um, but as a 
as a um, as an industry, and I, I get this just by looking, walking the the floors of Formnext and things like that. As an industry, we need to do a better job of making sure that we're selling not just a machine but a solution, mm-hmm. and we all need to do that. Yeah, um, and and finally, Cora, um, obviously, thank you for, for taking the time today. But to bring it back to to chromatic three D materials. Um, for the for the last question, what is the what's the vision for the company moving forward? And I guess from a, a product standpoint, what the what are the next challenges you and, and the team at Chromatic are, are looking to solve with the with the products you guys bring to market? Sure. Um, you know, we have more than fifty major manufacturers in our pipeline who are excited to transform their manufacturing processes and products uh, with our technology, and you know, when we add up what that can mean for us, if we just convert those 50 customers, it's quite staggering. It looks like our revenues could be as much as a billion dollars or more. Um, And, you know, that would make us the largest 3D printing company in the world. (laughs) And so our focus right now is to really work with our customers in partnership to make sure that we can implement on their manufacturing lines. That's what we have to do. Um, that means we're going to continue to expand our product families and our printing capabilities so we can offer materials beyond urethanes and elastomers. We're definitely, our, our roadmap takes us well beyond urethanes and elastomers. And I'm confident that, you know, it, it's really a customer-led innovation. I'm confident that this capability expansion will turn that pipeline of 50 customers into 500 and 5,000. And you know, there, there's a lot of manufacturing that needs to be automated and, and more than a trillion dollars of excess inventory that needs to be eliminated. So there's there's a lot of work for us all to do. And uh, I'm sure Chromatic won't do all of it, but we, we certainly have our eyes on, on the parts that we really think we can make a big impact on. 